Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. States have played a leading role in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. And we have seen a variety of strategies used by the states to help curb its spread. As the country now works to safely reopen, states are facing new challenges as the number of cases appear to be on the rise in some areas. Today, we will hear how the state of Florida tackled the initial outbreak and what it is doing to protect to keep those gains. We will also hear how Congress can help support the states moving forward with reopening. And finally, we're he we'll hear about the important role data can play in developing an effective response at the federal and state level moving forward. Let me introduce our speakers. Mary Mayhew is Secretary for Healthcare Administration in the state of Florida. In this role, Secretary Mayhew is responsible for health policy and planning for the state of Florida managing a, over a two, $29 billion healthcare budget, which accounts for 30% of Florida's total state budget. Secretary Mayhew is known as a reform-minded, action-oriented policy official who has served as the former Commissioner of Health and Human Services for the state of Maine and spent time in the Trump administration as Deputy Administrator in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Dr. Mike Burgess is a member of of the U.S. Congress, where he has represented the 26th District of Texas since 2003. He is the lead Republican leader of the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Health and also serves on the prestigious House Rules Committee. Dr. Burgess is the most senior medical doctor in Congress and is known as a problem solver who seeks sensible solutions to the challenges facing the country. He received his MD from the University of Texas Medical School in Houston and completed his residency programs at Parkland Hospital in Dallas. And finally, Doug Badger. He is a visiting fellow in domestic policy at the Heritage Foundation and is also a visiting fellow at the Galen Institute. He has a long and distinguished policy career in Washington. He has held leadership positions in the US Senate, the Department of Health and Human Services, and in the White House. Doug has done an extensive work on the COVID-19 issue, specifically analyzing the data and the policy responses to the COVID-19 outbreak. Before we get started, I'd like to share a few housekeeping items with everyone. First, all attendees are in a listen-only mode. Second, we welcome and encourage your questions. They can be submitted through the questions box on your GoToWebinar dashboard. And finally, this session is being recorded and will be made available after the event at heritage.org events. With that, let me invite Secretary Mayhew to join us for her presentation.
Good afternoon, Nina. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to the Heritage Foundation for the opportunity to share uh, Florida's experience in combating this uh, virus and our efforts throughout this public health emergency. First and foremost, I think it's critically important to underscore that Governor DeSantis, from the very beginning, has had a laser beam focus on protecting our elderly. The governor has long understood the difference between panic and preparedness. Florida also has a strong foundation because of our efforts to prepare uh, for hurricanes. And so Florida has had an emergency status system. So I had, the governor has had throughout this public health crisis at our fingertips data on the healthcare system's capacity. I have known day in and day out the number of available beds, the number of uh, individuals, COVID positive patients in ICU beds, the burn rate of PPE, the number of ventilators, the number of individuals on ventilators. What was important to the governor was that we were looking at Florida specific data and driving data-informed decisions. And that has uh, been a part of our efforts from the very beginning. And I want to just uh, touch upon uh, this data to demonstrate the capacity that we have evaluated throughout. So you can see uh, over the last couple of months where our cases have gone today. Uh, over 75,000 cases. Now, early on, when the governor on March 20th uh, prohibited elective procedures, that immediately increased our capacity in the system. In fact, in April, on average, we saw an overall reduction in hospitalizations, excluding COVID, of over 30%. At our uh, peak during that uh, increased capacity, we had over 25,000 available beds. Now, as we have begun to resume elective procedures, you can still see that today we have over 16,000 available beds with over 2,400 hospitalizations. So important that we have been consistently monitoring that case trend, our hospitalizations, and then our overall capacity. And again, this is in a state with a population of 21 million individuals with over four and a half million individuals over the age of 65. We have nearly 4,000 long-term care facilities with over 150,000 residents in those facilities. And of course, many uh, frail elderly individuals uh, with underlying uh, medical conditions who rely on services in their homes that were also very much a part of our efforts. You can uh, take the slide down for now. The bottom line is that Governor DeSantis took proactive and decisive action to protect our state, to drive data-informed decisions, and fundamentally to ensure the health of residents in our long-term care and residential facilities. As I said, we have an emergency status system that was activated on March 2nd. Early in March, I personally visited 
nursing homes. I think it's important to understand that sometimes government can develop somewhat of a bunker mentality. I knew that we couldn't make good decisions from uh, just behind our uh, desks in Tallahassee. I needed to hear uh, personally from our frontline providers. Those early interactions helped to guide our decisions and fundamentally what I heard from nursing homes that the CDC recommendations for infection control to battle COVID-19, they often exceeded the typical expectations for our nursing homes, for our assisted living facilities. Think about the focus on negative pressure rooms, on N95 masks. N95 masks simply weren't part of the traditional inventory of our nursing homes. Additionally, our nursing homes often are at 85, 90, 95% occupancy. This makes it very difficult, uh, certainly in some of our older buildings, but to have that level of occupancy to be able to safely isolate. So we never had false expectations. And what we knew, and I think this is critically important to understand as well, when you think about the frontline staff and our long-term care facilities, they're helping our vulnerable elderly who were most at risk in a setting uh, that was most vulnerable to rapid transmission. They're helping these individuals to bathe, to get dressed, to be fed, uh, to brush their teeth, a level of interaction that clearly made those settings uh, incredibly vulnerable. So the governor uh, was focused on that, initially establishing very comprehensive screening requirements for those facilities, screening of staff, of visitors, of vendors. Uh, and then shortly after that, uh, on uh, March 15th, the governor prohibited all visitation in those facilities. We prohibited hospitals from discharging COVID positive patients back to these long-term care facilities. This is of course uh, a very different approach than was taken by other states. We understood that if we were not careful, uh, that the two cases could quickly become 20 cases, five could become 50, uh, and that these would lead to increased hospitalizations. So we were determined to stand guard at our long-term care facilities to support them. We mandated that masks be worn uh, throughout shifts. We also understood how difficult this was for hospitals. They had been conditioned for decades by Medicare to get individuals in and out of the hospital. I was on calls uh, every single day with hospital CEOs and chief medical officers and discharge planners. And every day we heard about their frustration of transferring individuals back to long-term care facilities, COVID positive, and we drew a hard line and said no, uh, that we were not going to have individuals either COVID positive or at risk of being COVID positive returned to those facilities. This was a, a pivotal part of our efforts that truly has made a difference, uh, has helped to save lives and to prevent the spread in these facilities. 
The state also deployed rapid response teams that combined uh, many of my staff, our boots on the ground surveyors, with public health officials, EMS personnel. Uh, when we were alerted to a challenge in a facility, we had teams that uh, throughout the day and night could be deployed to provide resources. Again, I think important to remember early on, the guidance was changing. Very difficult for these facilities given the need to quickly respond to the latest guidance, to train their staff, to have them ready. Uh, the governor also deployed National Guard uh, to our nursing homes and assisted living facilities to conduct testing of staff and of residents. We work to deploy personal protective equipment, again, uh, recognizing that this was not an inventory that many of these facilities maintained and certainly not at a level that was necessary for uh, their efforts to protect their patients, to be able to clinically monitor their residents, to safely isolate their residents. So if you could just put uh, the next slide up. This is, I think, what is incredibly important, especially given uh, what we have seen recently with some of the efforts by the national media to uh, suggest that we are seeing a dramatic increase in Florida. We have seen, in fact, a 45% reduction in COVID positive ICU hospitalizations since April 12th. We definitely are seeing reduced acuity. You can go to the next slide. We have seen a 59% reduction in COVID positive individuals on ventilators. And again, uh, as we all recall, significant concern about our ICU bed availability and certainly the availability of ventilators. And overall, our hospitalizations have remained fairly stable. But importantly, and you can uh, bring up the next slide, what we also did in Florida through the governor's leadership was to create COVID dedicated skilled nursing facilities where we have funded the availability of vacant beds. And today we have regional facilities so that when a nursing home or assisted living facility cannot safely isolate and adhere to the necessary infection control standards, we have the opportunity to transfer out individuals to these dedicated COVID facilities until such time as the individual is COVID negative and can be returned back to their homes in these nursing homes and assisted living facilities. It has also helped to support our hospitals so that uh, if they have COVID positive individuals who no longer require hospital level of care, that they can be timely discharged to these dedicated facilities. Again, this has made a huge difference in our ability to respond to the crisis, to meet the challenges in our long-term care facilities, to support our hospitals. And these are facilities that we will continue to support for months to come as we uh, monitor the data and respond effectively uh, to the regional challenges. I, I just, I want to uh, su summarize that as our state safely 
and thoughtfully reopens. We continue our regular engagement with our providers, with those who have that frontline day-to-day experience. That has been critical. Uh, we could not have made the decisions here in Florida if we were not hearing regularly from emergency room physicians, from chief medical officers, from county public health officers, from EMS personnel, county administrators, every day on calls with nursing home administrators, using that feedback to inform our decisions, to provide critical resources and guidance and policies. I am absolutely grateful to Governor DeSantis uh, for his thoughtful leadership, his decisive action, to all of our healthcare personnel and their efforts to uh, maintain a level of commitment and dedication that has made an absolute difference in the welfare of all Floridians and has fundamentally contributed to lives saved. Nina, thank you very much for the opportunity to share and I look forward to responding to questions. Great, thank you so much, Secretary Mayhew, and for sharing really, really up-to-date live data that's actually happening in Florida and, and what you all are doing to address it. Um, now I'd like to invite Dr. Burgess to join us and share his remarks about uh, what Congress is up to on, on this front. Thanks, Dr. Burgess. Thanks, Nina. Thanks for uh, thanks for letting me be part of this. Secretary Mayhew, uh, very informative, and I certainly enjoyed uh, and learned from what you uh, what you had to tell us today. And I think uh, when you when I think about this virus, and and one of the things that this uh, this meeting today really underscores is that this virus is different in different parts of the country. It is a new virus. We don't know all that we are eventually going to know about the biologic behavior of this virus. We don't know some things about how it's even going to behave throughout the course of a calendar year. But I think one of the uh, the big takeaways from the beginning of our experience is it is different in, in different states. And just like the East Coast experience was different from the West Coast experience, Florida's experience has been different from that of New York. The experience in Texas has been different from that in New Jersey. Perhaps there are some similarities between Texas and Florida, both being in inherently warmer climates, but at the same time, obviously, there are, there are differences. I think the most important thing that, uh, that Governor DeSantis did on, in, in Florida has been the, the phased reopening. Um, I will talk a little bit about all of the uh, response legislation that the Congress has done uh, in the face of this uh, virus, in the face of this pandemic. But realistically, I also know that there is no way that just given the breadth and the, and the vastness of the American economy, Congress cannot on an emergency basis appropriate enough money to completely replace the throughput of uh, the American output really for very long. So we have to get people back to work. We have to let people begin to resume their lives. The, uh, the slowdown, the, the stoppage 
was thought to be necessary in the early days of this in an effort not to overwhelm our, our medical facilities. But as we've just heard from Secretary Mayhew and with very close attention as to hospital utilization, ICU utilization, ventilator utilization, that these are important parameters to follow. And in fact, one of my early lamentations about the, our response to this, congressional response to this, was we had uh, we weren't paying attention to those things. In fact, we had not done uh, at a rules committee hearing on uh, March 10th or 11th. Uh, uh, no survey had been done on the availability of ventilator capacity across the country. So indeed, we were finding ourselves heading into this crisis without the the amount of knowledge that we would need to be able to fight it. Well. Good news is that in, in, in many cases that challenge was, was met head on and the administration did some things, entirely appropriate things in, in my opinion. Number one, the travel restriction of China, something that I did not see when Ebola threatened us in 2014, when Zika threatened us in, in 2015, travel restriction, you go to the administration and talk about it and it would just fall on deaf ears. This administration did listen and uh, the travel restriction that was enacted the latter part of uh, January was, was critically important. Um, in fact, the same night I was in that rules committee hearing, one of the reasons we were up so late was because the president had addressed the country and part of his address to the country was he was restricting travel from Europe to this country, which caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, my, myself included, the president was criticized that night in the committee by, by committee Democrats who said, why is he, why is he treating our, our allies like this? But the fact of the matter was very few people were aware about the amount of, of uh, the potential for illness that was coming from, uh, from Europe and, and coming through travel patterns that went from Europe to the East Coast of this country. So it was entirely appropriate what the president did. And of course, that's something that only the president can do. The governors of states do not have the ability to provide a, a, a travel restriction. Now, the uh, the experience, the Florida experience, as far as as really focusing on the vulnerable populations and senior living facilities, congregate facilities, extremely important. And in fact, we knew from the very early days of this virus, with unfortunately the experience in Washington State, just how vulnerable those populations were. And Vice President Pence came and talked to us as members of the House of Representatives the first week in March and really laid out that we needed to be in communication with our nursing homes and senior living facilities in our areas and make certain that everyone did understand just exactly what the risks were and, and what, the, what the ability was to mitigate those risks. Um, it has perhaps been uh, not as, as even in other states as it has been in Florida. I know Texas really has made an effort uh, to ensure that every resident of a nursing home is, uh, has the availability of a test. And I believe testing of, of virtually every nursing home resident has occurred and testing of their staffs has likewise occurred. And that's been incredibly important. Uh, probably one of the reasons why you've seen the case rate increase in, in Texas was because of the really the ramp up of, of testing. I note that Dr. Gottlieb this morning pointed out that although the test rate has the testing rate has increased in this country, the overall positivity of the test rate remains across the country remains about five and a half 
to 5.6%, which is far lower than what it was in the, in the early days of this virus. Look, I also realize that this virus has taken on really a political, a, a, a political persona all of its own. And it's, it's unusual to see people uh, cheering for the virus or, or cheering against the economy, but that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in today. And it's possible to construct a narrative, um, depending upon which news sources you want to cite, that it's either truly the best of times or, or the worst of times. But if you look at the big trend lines, I do, I do feel like they're continuing to go in the correct direction. Doesn't mean you can take your, your eye off the ball or your foot off the gas. And as a consequence, I think some of the some of the big work that's being done right now, and this is where the federal government really does have an ability to perhaps influence the arc of this illness, and that's in the in, in the realm of, of of research and development of medical countermeasures, uh, antivirals, vaccines, if you will, and a multiple number of vaccines are actually in in process and being being constructed right now. That is. Uh, that collaboration that's going on between the NIH and, and the private sector, extremely important. And sometimes we forget this because it is, is just, just so common that we take it for granted. America is the engine of innovation. If there is a way past this virus, if there is a way through this virus, and we always do uh, successfully rise to any challenge like this, but the, the path through it is going to be through innovation. It is uh, ironic that in October of this past year, we were considering a bill in the House of Representatives that would have uh, put a 95% excise tax on the gross receipts of any pharmaceutical company whose prices we didn't like. Uh, that seemed to me to be short-sighted because what happens uh, to the fact that you depend upon these same companies for innovation and then just really literally a few weeks or months later, it was uh, demonstrably without the innovation that say came from Gilead with remdesivir to repurpose an, uh, an old HIV drug that uh, really we would have been left without any medical countermeasures and without any tools to fight. Work on the, on the vaccine is proceeding at a pace uh, unlike anything I have ever seen. Credit the administration for leaning into this uh, they are they are anxious for success to occur here, not for political purposes, but but it's because what is necessary to be uh, to be beneficial to the country. Um, you do have to be careful. Pushing a back vaccine through too quickly can result in harm, and I do believe that uh, although the Food and Drug Administration has made some what I would consider improvements in the regulatory process, still they have an eye towards safety before the vaccine is ultimately licensed and, and uh, re released to the American public. But one of the things that's happening right now is the Food and Drug Administration has allowed for the licensing of manufacturer of a promising candidate vaccine before final approval. Now that's a risk that the pharmaceutical company will, will take and if eventually no approval is given, then those are some costs which can never be recovered. But think about it the other way. If one of those candidate vaccines is, is truly a home run, um, 
you're going to need production to really ramp up quickly. And I think it is, uh, I think it's important that Dr. Hahn has allowed, the FDA has allowed the flexibility for that to happen. Look, there's a lot of things over the horizon, a lot of things that Congress is going to consider in the days ahead. We're only just now beginning any sort of hearings on this topic, which I think is way late in the uh, in the game plan. But I'm grateful now that uh, that uh, committee Democrats have taken the advice that I laid out for them several weeks ago about a path to follow uh, with our congressional hearings, at least in energy and commerce. Um, it's still a rough road ahead, make no mistake about it. Second wave, or even just the persistence of the first wave into the fall, into what could be a, 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 an aggressive flu season will pose an additional problem for our first line health personnel. But at the same time, again, I would just stress, we'll get through this, we always do. And Nina, let me turn it back to you and I'm happy to take your questions. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Burgess. It's always good to remind everyone what actually is happening here in Washington that is supporting the on-the-ground efforts um, at the state level and the local level. Now, let me invite uh, Doug Badger to join us and, and share some of his thoughts and remarks on this topic. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Dr. Burgess and Secretary Mayhew. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, why public policy on COVID-19 needs to evolve with the ongoing evidence. Uh, we've seen that in, in Florida, Governor DeSantis and Secretary Mayhew's leadership. We're not seeing that in an awful lot of different states. So let's start with where we began uh, back in March. And at the time, of course, there was a, a, a whole lot of fear and, and, and a lot of unknowns. There was fear that everyone was equally at risk of contagion and death, fear that uh, high rates of infection would be spread broadly geographically, uh, fear that the case fatality rates would be very high, maybe comparable to that of the Spanish flu, and fear that hospitals would be overrun by infected uh, patients. And we don't need the slides uh, right now, but thank you. Uh, we'll bring them up in a minute. Thank you. Uh, so what happened? Well, by and large, policymakers responded with uh, broad lockdown orders, and that was understandable. There was so much unknown, and as uh, Secretary Mayhew and Dr. Burgess have pointed out, there was a real fear that hospitals would be overrun with infected patients, sort of what we saw in, in Milan and Bergamo and other cities in Northern Italy. The, the, the widespread lockdown orders were an expedient. But what happened in many uh, states around the country, particularly uh, in, the, in the Northeast and, and uh, in more highly populated areas, Florida and Texas being exceptions to the rule, um, is that the lockdowns were understood no longer as an expedient, but as a solution. And then they became more or less the organizing principle that came to define the public health response to the uh, pandemic. So we, we began to understand public health interventions and to measure them based on how strict the lockdowns were. Were they, were they uh, broad stay-at-home orders? Um, could you relax them and under what circumstances? Um, how long should you keep them in place? 
whether you could make exceptions for politically acceptable uh, reasons uh, and whether once relaxed these uh, uh, restrictions need to be needed to be um, reinstated. Most importantly, what happened is that this uh, focus on lockdowns as the uh, predominant response to the contagion created blind spots, created a blind spot to nursing home deaths. Again, Florida being one of the exceptions, because those guys were already social distancing. They were already not in the uh, in the public square. So they're just sort of outside the view of the uh, of the lockdown orders. But the other thing that happened was a failure to evolve policy with facts. So I'm going to cover four areas, four big things we know that we didn't used to know, and then how those should affect public policy on COVID-19. Those four things are that the pandemic is demographically concentrated. Secondly, that it is not as deadly as first uh, feared. Thirdly, that the pandemic is geographically concentrated. And finally, the U.S. hospital capacity is, is resilient. So if you could bring up the, the first slide, I want to talk about the demographic uh, characteristics of, uh, of COVID-19. Uh, with COVID-19, we think about age, comorbidity, and place of residence as the key demographic factors. 80% of COVID-19 deaths are among people over 65, only 7% among people under 55. And when it comes to school-aged children and young adults, uh, it drops uh, even, uh, even lower than that. Secondly, 90% of people who have died of COVID-19 have comorbidities, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, pulmonary disease. Uh, people with, who die of COVID-19 by and large have some underlying medical condition uh, that is certainly a contributing cause in their death or at least in their susceptibility to the worst symptoms of, of the disease. And finally, a plurality, if not an absolute majority, of COVID-19 deaths are nursing home related. Depending on the, on the survey data you cite, it's between 42 and 53% of COVID-19 deaths occur among 0.6% of the population. So with respect to the other 99.4%, um, you, you have the other half of the deaths, and most of those are, again, among the elderly and people with comorbidities. So we talk about demographic um, uh, concentration is that serious illness and death is largely an issue for the elderly, particularly those with comorbidities and those who live in, in nursing homes. The next slide, um, if you can bring that up, will talk about the case fatality ratio. Now this is based on CDC's best estimates of what the age-related case fatality issue. What's case fatality? Well, if you look there for the seasonal flu, for every 100,000 people who are infected by the flu, typically 100 will die. So that's a case fatality ratio of 0.1. For COVID-19, the best estimate, and again, these things are going to change with time. The CDC's best estimate is it's about three times that rate. Remember, this is a rate. Since there's no vaccine, more people are potentially going to contract this disease, and that's one of the reasons the death rate is so high relative to, uh, relative to seasonal flu. 
but look below at the age-related case fatality ratio. You'll see for people under 50, it's, it's, it's about a third of the rate of the seasonal flu. And again, unfortunately, CDC doesn't break these numbers out more finely. You would look, if, you, if they did, you would see that among children, young adults, and so forth, the, the uh, case fatality ratio is probably much lower. Uh, but we don't have those numbers, so I, I can only speculate. At 50, it goes up. Um, and if you look at age 65, you're at almost a 1% case fatality ratio. Now, if you read uh, the papers or follow the news or uh, your social media, you will hear case fatality ratios for this at 5%, 6%, 3%. It's not at that, it's not at that rate. It's much lower than that which is, and it's also again age-related, which is an important point for policymakers. The next slide, we can get that up, talks about the geographic concentration. Now these figures are a little out of date, they're from a paper uh, we published uh, late last month, but, but generally speaking, these are going to be in the same ballpark. 30 counties, that's fewer than 1% of counties, account for nearly half the total cases, and more than half the total deaths. Those 30 counties, by and large, are between Boston and Philadelphia, uh, so they're concentrated in the Northeast. Among nearly 2,000 counties um, at, at the time this was produced had zero or one COVID-19 related death, uh, representing about, uh, they represented about 3% of total cases and one half of 1% of deaths. So again, policies that are statewide and that treat all of the areas within the state the same way are, are misguided. And you can take the slide down. The last, the last point I wanna make, um, and, and we saw this in Secretary Mayhew's slide in, in, in Florida, but it's generally true throughout the country. U.S. hospital capacity is robust. We have the second lowest occupancy rate in the developed world. Uh, on a typical day, without a bans on non-emergent care, on a typical day, uh, we have 64% of beds occupied, which means that more than a third of beds are empty and available to new patients. When you look at ICU capacity on a population basis, uh, ICU beds per 100,000, the US has two to three times the ICU capacity of, of, of most European nations. So what do we, what do we, what can we conclude from these four uh, data points? First, the original uh, rationale for widespread lockdowns, which was that hospitals would be overrun, has not borne out. We're grateful for that. We're happy the models were wrong. And we need to know that on an episodic localized basis, there is a possibility with a large outbreak that they would be tested again, which is one of the reasons uh, that people are monitoring these rates. But for the most part, the original rationale for the widespread lockdowns uh, fortunately has not worked out. Secondly, the disease though highly contagious and capable of producing serious illness and death is thankfully far less lethal on a case fatality ratio than was at first feared. Third, it's geographically concentrated, uh, not evenly spread across the nation or even across states. 
And finally, is COVID-19 is a deadly disease primarily, not exclusively, but primarily for the elderly, particularly those in nursing homes and those with underlying medical conditions. So how should that evidence about COVID-19 that we have today, didn't have back in March, affect a public policy? I think there are basically four policy guidances, all of which I think um, uh, are typified in what, in, in, what, in what Florida has done. First, need, they need to replace widespread and untargeted stay-at-home orders with policies that are targeted geographically and demographically. Secondly, we need to focus on the most vulnerable populations, nursing homes first and foremost, but the elderly generally and others with underlying comorbidities that make them most susceptible to serious illness and death from COVID-19. Thirdly, I think the broad, widespread bans on non-emergent care need to be ended and ended quickly. We lost 1.4 million healthcare jobs in April, 9% reduction of healthcare workers during a medical emergency, largely because of bans on non-emergent care. Now we got some of those jobs back in May, but hospitals and nursing homes continued to reduce their labor force in May. That is really unacceptable and, 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 and needs to be corrected as, as soon as possible. And finally, the ongoing work that Secretary Mayhew uh, uh, described. The issue isn't, do we come back with a lockdown? Do we relax the lockdown? Do we reinstate it? Do we go back and forth? What needs to be done is aggressive vigilance to identify emerging hotspots. And secondly, aggressive public health innovation, testing, contact tracing, and, some, and, and separating the infected from the uninfected. We have a long way to go as far as we know in this pandemic, unless a vaccine becomes available. And the, the focus now should not be on lockdowns. It should be on identifying emerging hotspots and intervening in effective ways. And with that, I'll turn it back to Nina. Great, don't go anywhere, Doug. We're gonna invite the rest of the panel to join us back um, as we take a few questions um, from the audience. Um, so thank you all. We have a lot of wide ranging questions that have kind of come in. Um, I'm trying to sort them by kind of topic area. If there's someone specific that I think it will um, go towards, I'll let you know, but feel free to jump in to respond to any questions that you might, might find. Um, the first um, question for Secretary Mayhew. This is actually from a colleague of ours at the State Think Tank at the James Madison Institute in Florida from Sal Muzo. And his question is, Florida's population is skewing older and the majority of our growth coming in the, is the cohort of the population that is more susceptible to COVID. Are there any policy reforms you're strategizing on for longer term, 2021, 2022, that might be helpful. Well, thank you, Nina, and thank you, Sal. Appreciate that uh, question and, and opportunity. And, and certainly, you know, so much of what we have an opportunity now to evaluate is how do you sustain 
the commitment to protect our elderly and certainly in Florida with the large percentage of our population. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, there are uh, many flexibilities that we adopted for so many of the elderly who are in their homes that allowed them to receive services in their homes so that they didn't have to go to the emergency department, that, that we truly we looked at uh, meal delivery, uh, incredible expansion of telehealth and telemonitoring. And I would just say fundamentally, we're not going to let go of that. That is the silver lining. There is a catalyst for change and that aspect of healthcare delivery and transformation that we need to hold on to, uh, and that is the ability to support the delivery of healthcare services via telehealth, uh, the telemonitoring for individuals with chronic disease so that they don't need to go out and uh, increase uh, their risk of exposure. Very quickly, I would also say the important uh, lessons learned pertain to regional collaboration. We need hospitals and nursing homes and assisted living facilities communicating regularly with one another so that they can support the necessary resources, the infection control best practices, and the regional approach and response to responding. We can't let go of that. We've got some great models that have emerged and we need to support sustaining that level of commitment on a regional basis. Great, Dr. Burgess, if I might um, throw you at this question as well. Um, there has been some talk about perhaps some of the temporary changes that have been done legislatively in Congress, maybe some of them also should be made permanent, whether it's telehealth or some of the others. Do you think that there's a possibility of that? Or do you see any momentum of that moving forward? I think we're having some trouble with your volume. There you go. The biggest driver is going to be consumer demand or patient demand. Now the patients know that they can access uh, at least some services via via telehealth. Um, it's going to be hard to convince them to hire a babysitter and go pay for parking to go to the doctor's office. Um, I think from the standpoint of uh, the at, at the federal level, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services obviously needs to look at the, at the at the reimbursement and make permanent those changes that have been done by waiver right now. And if we need to do that legislatively, then then so be it. But it will be very, very hard to, to walk that back. The other place where actually um, there was a vulnerability early on in this, and, and it was in testing, and it had to do with moving most of testing uh, and the approval for testing out of the realm of CLIA, out, out of the realm of, of CMS into the Food and Drug Administration where laboratory developed tests were no longer uh, judged by a CLIA waiver, but they had to be approved by the Centers for Devices and Radiological Health. And that really slowed things down in the development of, of novel uh, laboratory tests. Now, Dr. Hahn, to his credit, Administrator Hahn has done a lot toward emergency use authorizations to allow there to be a great deal more participation in the private sector. And I don't think we need to go back to where we were before. If the regulations that created that environment were that pernicious, it's probably not reasonable to reinstate them. Wonderful. Here's a question um, for Doug. 
What do Mr. Badger's policy prescriptions mean for the possibility of reopening large entertainment gatherings such as baseball games? Well, um, yeah, I would leave that to, uh, to, to some of the experts. I mean, obviously, um, in recent days, we've had fairly large gatherings in the form of demonstrations. And the general view of um, even officials who have put um, who, who, have, who have made a, um, a, a strong commitment to lockdowns and social distancing believe that those uh, demonstrations were more important and more pressing than the public health concerns. So we're all sort of uh, grasping around for a, a way out of it. Uh, but um, my own view right now is that uh, until you can see uh, that we're getting a little more on top of things in terms of uh, controlling uh, the, the outbreak and responding uh, properly, have, have contact tracing protocols in place, particularly in areas with, uh, with high incidence of infection. I'd probably be a, a, a little nervous um, about uh, uh, having a, a, a 50,000 people crowded into a ballpark, but um, I know there are other views on that, and I would uh, defer to others who know more than I do. Tadina, if I can, sure. can just add, uh, and the you know the hard part about uh, the experience that's going to be uh, sort of winnowed out of the uh, uh, what was the experience with the people showing up for for protesting? Well, we know because of the long incubation period, this virus can have as much as two weeks. And then it can take a week or longer to get a test result back. So the lag time between an event and then what happens is so long that it, it, it tends to mute the, the effect of the event. But um, I also think we're people are gonna figure a lot of this out for themselves. They don't necessarily need their state or federal government telling them what to do. If they're in a high risk category, as, as Doug so eloquently pointed out in his presentation, uh, you probably want to think twice before getting into a venue where you'll be in, in close proximity to, to other people that you don't know. Uh, I, for one, try to socially distance whenever possible, but when I go to my neighborhood Walmart, which is packed these days, I'm pretty much always going to wear a face covering. Here's another question for Secretary Mayhew. Was there any discussion between the states during the early days to share best practices or information that they were reaching? Um, and, how, and how do you explain the dramatic differences in the performance of different states? Well, there were certainly different forums where information was shared among uh, Medicaid directors, uh, public health officers, certainly um, surveyors, individuals who are intimately um, familiar with the regulatory oversight of our nursing homes and assisted living facilities. But I think as that has been pointed out, each state had to be very clear about their data. And I think the challenge, uh, the, the models that were out front constantly uh, in the media, it, it easily could have distorted uh, the response for some states. But as I mentioned, uh, even with some of the discussions around the state, we continued to focus on our data to guide. We were closely monitoring hospitalizations, uh, looking at, again, standing guard at our nursing homes and ALFs, 
and monitoring our hospitalizations and obviously our fatalities and having that daily inform our decision-making. Certainly aware of what was going on around the country, around the world, uh, leveraging to the extent that there were best practices that, that were identified, but aggressively leading based upon the data that we were receiving. And again, I think, as Doug pointed out, we did know uh, from some of the data internationally about the fatality rate among our elderly. And we did understand that both their elderly and those with underlying medical conditions were at greatest risk. Then when you put them in a residential setting, imagine a memory care unit where you have individuals who do not understand, they don't want to, uh, they can't stay isolated. We had to take that into consideration to protect them. Uh, and of course, putting, I, I just want to say this as well, putting that visitation restriction in was one of the hardest decisions we could possibly have made. We've broken a lot of hearts uh, as individuals have been separated from their loved ones, but we did it because we cared deeply about protecting them. Great, thank you. This is kind of building off um, that, that response, but looking forward, where do you see the biggest gaps moving ahead? Is it funding? Is it materials? Um, is it more data and information? And that's really a question for all of you, I guess. If you were looking from your kind of bird's nest, where do you see the biggest gaps moving forward? Um, and do you think there's much, or what should be done to fill them? I'm happy to, can I kick, I'll kick off. Uh, I would say, uh, supply chain distribution and the logistics of uh, deploying the volumes of personal protective equipment, much to be learned. And again, trying to minimize false expectations. Uh, as I said, uh, knowing the importance of N95 masks and also understanding that that was not part of the inventory of most nursing homes and certainly not assisted living facilities. And taking a step back now and understanding, well, what does that mean What's the level of readiness? How do you quickly respond and have a supply chain that's ready to distribute those volumes? The data analytics, uh, yeah, unfortunately in state government, we sometimes lag behind uh, the, the rest of the private sector when it comes to both having data and then being able to leverage it in a way to inform decisions. So looking at uh, data in, analytics in a way that helps to drive uh, what we're seeing, understanding boots on the ground reality, and the regional differences in order to drive decision making. So I've already discussed a little bit the uh, development of medical countermeasures and, and vaccines, which obviously is uh, is a big part of of the landscape ahead. The uh, availability of personal protective equipment is. I can't say that it was underestimated early on, but I, I will tell you I met with uh, a lot of my hospital administrators in the area and in the state back in February when they were all concerned about a new rule that was coming out of CMS that had to do with Medicaid reimbursements. And I casually asked the question, I'm worried about this virus overseas. How are you all fixed for, for protective equipment? Remembering how difficult a time we had with uh, with Ebola when it showed up in our backyard in the in the Dallas Fort Worth area, and uh, was assured by everyone at the table, oh, yeah, we're we're 
we're doing pretty well there and we've got these broad agreements that we're going to share with each other which will work good until you put a stress test on the system which is exactly what happened now the air bridge the the bringing repatriating of, of things that had been sent away to other locations that was critically important and i guess if there's one bright spot in this coronavirus cloud if there's one silver lining to the coronavirus cloud it will be attention to the uh, supply chain the uh, bringing back and reshoring a lot of these activities which we we now understand clearly i mean i think people have under, have gotten it for a while but now it really has become almost irrefutable that you do put yourself at, at your and your folks at uh, really unreasonable risk and the creation of these supply lines entirely within the united states is going to be important if we pay a few pennies more per mask then so be it that uh, that will have to be the uh, uh, the new normal going forward if the government needs to procure vast amounts of materials for its strategic national stockpile which lately has come under some scrutiny great so be it we also need to relax the rules so that there can be a rotation of stock within that stockpile in collaboration with department of defense department of veterans affairs department of homeland security so that masks just don't sit on the shelf until they expire but they can be traded out for uh, where they might be needed in another branch, another part of the of the, of the federal healthcare uh, footprint. So those are just some of the things going forward that I think uh, we'll need to pay attention to. How about you, Doug? What do you think Congress, the state, should be focused on moving forward? Well, I'm going to go back to uh, to data. Uh, the the uh, one of the things this is exposed, unfortunately, is the CDC doesn't do a very good job of collecting and disseminating data. Some of their practices are, are are truly antiquated. In some cases, they're collecting the information by fax, believe it or not, um, and it's not electronically transmitted in ways that 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 might be useful. Um, the, the facts on the ground, as as uh, both Dr. Burgess, I know, and Secretary Mayhew can attest, as they try to stay on top of this, the facts on the ground change uh, almost uh, certainly daily, and sometimes it seems hourly. Um, and, and, and CDC, I think, uh, not to be critical, but I think there was a little bit of mission creep, creep there. Um, their primary goal is contagious diseases. These pandemics come along every 10 or 15 years, and in the meantime, they, they get involved in all sorts of other things, which may be useful, um, but uh, they shouldn't uh, distract from the core mission uh, of the agency, which is, in fact, to uh, try to help combat communicable diseases. So better data, better practices. And I would uh, hope as uh, Congress goes forward, Dr. Burgess, uh, that, that you guys would help CDC focus a little bit more on its core mission. And maybe some of the good things it does could be farmed out to to, uh, to other agencies and, and, and let it get back to basics. Well, you know, they always say time flies when you're having fun. Um, we are almost at our three o'clock closing time. So uh, I think we'll end our questions there. I really want to thank our speakers who have provided such in-depth insight into what's going on and how complex this issue continues to be. There are no fast, quick answers for this, and we'll all just have to really stay focused and vigilant on what's going on. 
um, as the country continues to reopen and continues to protect the most vulnerable. I also want to thank those who joined us for this conversation. We appreciate the questions that came in and the participation. And with that, um, this concludes our session. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. Great, thank you.